Today's recording begins on page 288. William, I knew from my earlier visit to the Good Hope's house that it was a small but tidy, well, with tended grass and a dish of pansy on the porch steps. When Joseph and I arrived together, clouds bolted out the moon and the street was dark as pitch. It was quiet, too, so much that if it weren't for the sound of gunshots in the distance, you could have convinced me easy that Joseph and I were the only two people left in the world. Ruby? Joseph called once we'd got inside. No reply came. Stay here, he said. I'll look around. It didn't take him long, but in those few lightless minutes, I felt the walls of the tiny house press so close around me that I understood why Joseph wanted a Victrola for his mama. Music opened up space where there wasn't any and lit up skies inside you that ceilings couldn't hold in. Suddenly, I wanted there to be music in that house, too, and not just for Mrs. Goodhope, but for Joseph and Ruby as well. The floorboards creaked, and Joseph was back at my side, saying Ruby wasn't there. I asked where we should look next, and he managed to say, the Dreamland Theater, maybe, when lantern light peeked through a side window. Don't seem worth the trouble, Eugene, came a loud voice. These are just shanties. A second chimed in. Ah, horse feathers. Your family place ain't no bigger, Jack. Besides, maybe we'll find keys to that truck inside one of them. I could sure use a new truck. Joseph and I pressed against the wall, standing so close our shoulders touched. This knocked against wood next door. The voice that went with Jack hollered, Kick it in! Then the lantern light bounced like crazy, and there was thuds and a crack, and both those boys set to whooping and hollering. We got you now! Ain't no use trying to hide! Mr. and Mrs. Tyler, Joseph whispered. I saw anger in the set of his shoulders, heard it in his quick, shallow breathing. Your shotgun loaded, he asked. I said it was, but that I'd left my shells at the shop and only had the one round. It'll have to do, he replied, and told me his plan, asking if I thought I could pull it off. I didn't, but I said yes anyway. Then Joseph opened the door and stepped onto the porch. I got behind him, squeezed my eyes shut, pressed the Springfield's muzzle to his spine, and shouted, Make one wrong move and I'll shoot you dead. Next thing I knew, a big pumpkin-headed boy not much older than myself was in the Good Hope's yard, double-barreled, shotgun in one hand, lantern in another. He had a thick look about him, like maybe his mama had dropped him on his head a time too many. But he was big as a bull and muscled like a sideshow strongman. That boy giving you trouble, he asked. Nothing I can't handle, I replied. I'm just letting him know what's what. A jack-o'-lantern grin spread across my face. About time someone did, he said. My name's Eugene. Wait here. He turned and lumbered back inside the Tyler's house. We're fools if we don't make a break for it, I whispered. Couldn't agree more, whispered Joseph whispered back. But neither one of us took so much as a step towards the truck. And when the gray-haired couple stumbled out onto the porch, lantern light silhouetting their thin bowed lakes through the cloth of their nightshirts, I knew we'd been right to stay. A lean, hollow-cheeked white boy came out of the house behind them. After he and Eugene had forced them to march over to us, Eugene set the lantern down and said his friend's name was Jack. Jack had a rifle. And even though Eugene was big enough to give anyone pause, Jack scared me more. For his eyes were hooded and blank, and his expression never changed as he pushed the old man hard enough to send him sprawling down the stairs onto all fours. Evening, Jack said. I told him hello, and we all watched Mr. Tyler pull himself onto his knees. Eugene slapped the back of his head when he got there. 
Looky what Methuselah had tried to hide, he said, dangling gold pocket watch from one hand. We found it wrapped in, up in an oilcloth and hidden in the floor bin. Thought you were being clever, didn't you, boy? He slapped Mr. Tyler again. Answer him, Jack barked. And Mr. Tyler's mouth opened to speak, but Jack smashed the butt of his rifle into the man's temple before he could. His frail body crumpled sideways onto the dirt. Mrs. Tyler cried out and fell to her knees. Eugene planted the thick sole of his boot in the curve of her back and kicked, sending her forehead into the ground. Still, Joseph didn't move. Mrs. Tyler whimpered. Shut up, Jack barked. I cleared my throat loud and nudged Joseph's shoulder with a Springfield saying, At least you got something for your trouble. Ain't nothing in this one's house. He's poor as dirt. Eugene laughed a dollar's laugh. Jack's lips pulled back from his crooked teeth. Best take what you can out of the out of his hide then he said by which i figured he meant i should beat joseph or shoot him or both nah i said lies flowing off my tongue like god himself put him there i know over a fella over to convention hall gives me five dollars for every live negro i deliver which piqued eugene's interest enough to make him look at tyler's like maybe he'd let him live after all jack appeared dubious and though his rifle stayed pointed at the ground i knew he'd have it at his shoulder quick as he could as could be if he felt the need why would anyone do that he asked to which i replied i didn't know but i wasn't one to lick a gift horse in the mouth then a shot rang out nearby and every one of us in that yard tensed and there was nothing but threat in jack's voice when he spoke into the quiet that followed saying come to think of it neither am i so i'm wondering if maybe eugene and i oughtn't just take your truck and deliver these three to convention hall ourselves. And I will, I never will forget that moment so long as I live, for it was the first time I ever contemplated taking another man's life. But there was the small matter of Eugene's shotgun and Jack's rifle and the fact that neither boy seemed opposed to using them. So instead of shooting him over Joseph's shoulder, I said I'd advise him against it. Oh, you would, would you? He replied. Yes, I said. And asked, did he remember how a gang of men had dragged that white cat, that white car thief, Roy Belton, out of jail last year and lynched him while the police kept a lookout? Jack nodded. Eugene's eyes got big in the lamplight. Then I said how that how the man paying me for the live Negroes had been the leader of that gang and that he knew me and my truck since we delivered 10 to him already. And he don't take any more kindly to car thieves now than he did back then, I added. After which I pulled all five of Mama's $10 bills from my pocket and fanned them out for Jack to see. The money shifted something in Jack. Here's the 50 he gave me already, I told him. Cash. And since I'd hate to see the two of you get your neck stretched for stealing my pop's truck, what say I just give you $15? I'll get these three Negroes right here and now with five more thrown in for good measure. Eugene glanced at Jack. I shifted the Springfield's muzzle higher on Joseph's back. Jack saw and tilted the barrel of his rifle with his left hand, making ready to shoulder it. What say we make it 50, he asked, only wasn't really asking at all. Joseph's hand switched. Jack lifted the rifle higher. I nodded big. 50, then. 50 sounds fair to me. At which point, Jack shouldered his rifle all the way and dropped his cheek down and squinted at me through the sight. Get it from him, he told Eugene, and... Don't block my shot. Eugene came around Joseph and swiped the bills from my outstretched hand. Got it, he said. Jack told him to get back. I poked Joseph with the Springfield, saying, Help him up, boy. 
Joseph hesitated. I prodded him again. Help him up, I said, which changed the feel of the air between me and Jack and Eugene enough so all three of us could feel it. Joseph must have too, for he helped Mrs. Tyler to her feet and gathered Mr. Tyler into his arms, and he lifted the old man's body out of the dirt as if it were a child's and carried him to the trek with Mrs. Tyler limping alongside. I followed, gun to their backs, and I never did look behind me, not as I walked, not as I waited for Mrs. Tyler to pull herself into the trek, not even as I made a show of binding Joseph's wrists together in front of him with a length of twine pop kept in the back. For by the second-hand glow of the lantern on the porch, I'd seen Mr. Tyler's eyes open and blink against the blood from his temple and stare up at the inky sky. He was alive. We were all alive. And for that one brief moment, alive was enough. Ghosts walked the streets of Tulsa that night. Banshees, too. Back when she'd been alive, Granny Tillman loved telling me how her family's banshee in the old country would keep warnings two days prior to a death. The ones haunting Tulsa weren't so generous. For not a block after... An ice water whale had pierced the warm air around me. I found a dead man on the street. Judging from the swatch of uncharred skin between his shirt sleeve and the burned stump of his right hand, <clears throat> he'd been a Negro once. A length of rope looped around his neck and snaked along the street behind him. His body was broken, his suit in tatters. Someone had dragged him behind an automobile. The whether or not he'd been alive when it happened was a detail I chose not to ponder over much. His killers had left him splayed across the middle of the street so that there was no way to pass without hitting him. So though my main worry was getting the Tylers to a doctor, driving over a dead man was something I could not do. So I stopped the truck and got out, and not 30 seconds later, Joseph was kneeling at my side, praying aloud as he shucked off the loose-bound length of twine I'd wrapped around his wrists. I bowed my head and listened. We have to move him, Joseph said when his prayer was done. Where? I asked. And we searched each other's faces in the glow of headlamps for answers neither one of us had. When, then I climbed into the back of the truck to fetch one of the oilcloth tarps Pop had kept there. Dark as it was, I couldn't see the Tylers, but I could hear the missus gently shushing her husband's groans. Won't be long now, I whispered. We'll get you somewhere safe. Ain't no place safe for us, she whispered back. But I hear, heard tell there's a white church on Boston Avenue giving sanctuary. I told her I'd do our, my best to get us there. Then I carried the tarp back to the burned man, and me and Joseph rolled him onto it and wrapped the fabric around him twice. After we'd lifted him into the truck, Joseph handed me the twine and said I should bind his wrist again just in case. Makes me a more credible prisoner, he added, ignoring the way both our hands shook. You think Ruby might be at Dreamland? I asked mostly as a means of distraction. Might be, he replied, but if she is, there's meant... Better than us looking out for trained gunmen and soldiers, I mean to say. For now, I suppose we'd best get the Tyler somewhere a doctor can tend to them. I asked, was he sure? He said yes, so I told him I knew a place. Then Joseph climbed between the Tylers and the burned man, and without so much as asking me where, he said, I trust you will. Let's go. We traveled east, far enough from the buildings, got sparse, the streets turned dusty, and soft smells of hay and manure replaced the sharp edge of city air. I figured then that it was safe to turn south. I was wrong. For where the Frisco tracks crossed Kenosha, a line of cars and white men with rifles and flashlights and bike lanterns blocked the road completely. They were rough and refined by turns nine in number, alike only in the whiteness of their skin. Two wore old U.S. Army uniforms. Several had written deputy on scraps of cloth and pinned them to their shirts. 
and while men wore clan hoods, a thick whipping strap hung from the belt of the best-dressed man among them. We got trouble, Joseph, I said, doing my best not to move my lips. One of the men flagged me down. Evening, I said as he ambled towards me. The hand-rolled cigarette between his lips waggled as he responded in kind, then asked why a young man such as myself might be out and about in that part of town. I'm hunting Negroes. And yourself? I said with nary a blank nor a stutter. He laughed at that and took off his hat and wiped the sweat from his forehead with the inside of his sleep. Hear that, fellas? He hollered over his shoulder. Boy says he's hunting Negroes. Then the man behind him were li- the men behind him were laughing too, all except the fancy one in the press white shirt and fresh shine floor shoe shoes. I knew that's what they were because Pop had purchased a pair just like them not two weeks prior, saying no one wanted to buy high end items like Victrolas from a man in cut rate shoes. I touched the brim of my cap first to the laughing man nearest me, then to the flourishing man direct. Just stating my business, I said. The laughter died quick. Any particular reason you're alone? A man beside me asked. I replied that I preferred it that way. You find any? The flourishing man said, his voice clipped. Any what? I replied, feigning stupid. Then he was striding to the back of the truck so fast by the time I'd scrambled out and caught up with him. He was already shining his light inside. Joseph and the Tylers were pressed up against a rolled tarp, which Joseph must have pushed behind them. Mr. Tyler's eyes were closed. Joseph and Mrs. Tyler shielded theirs from the lantern's glare. Where'd you find them? The flourishing man asked. I replied they'd been in the root cellar of the old folks' shack. He narrowed his eyes and peered back so that I was sure he'd seen the tarp and want to know what was inside. Only it turned out he was looking at the gash of Mr. Tyler's temple. You responsible for that? He asked. And I replied that I was, adding, he tried to run. The flourishing man clapped me on the shoulder, said, well done. But then something new caught his eye, sending him straight into the truck to snatch Joseph up by the collar. Joseph didn't resist being dragged. His body fell like dead weight from the back of the truck onto the hard-packed dirt street. Did anybody ever teach you how to tie a proper knot, boy? The flourishing man growled. Then he kicked dirt into Joseph's face so that Joseph couldn't help but bring his hands to his eyes. And he pointed at the loose strands of twine around Joseph's wrist, saying I was lucky I'd caught a stupid one, elsewise he would have escaped. The flourishing man knelt down and yanked the twine tight, handed the loose end of it to the nearest of his friends, and stuffed his handkerchief into Joseph's mouth. Then the flourishing man nodded at one of the makeshift deputies who took out his pocket knife, slit Joseph's shirt clear up the back, and jerked the fabric wide onto his shoulders. The flourishy man pulled the strap from his belt, slow enough for me to make out the three Ks burned into its handle. He ran the side of that handle down Joseph's cheek, saying, String him up, boys. As they dragged Joseph off towards the nearest telephone pole, the flourishy man put his hand on my shoulder. My skin prickled. The hairs on my neck stood up as the heat of his whiskey-tinted breath touched my ear. Watch close, young fella, he whispered. Watch and learn. Rowan. There were seven messages on my phone the next morning from numbers I didn't recognize, all saying they were so-and-so from such-and-such website or newspaper, all wanting to know if I'd been willing to talk to them about Arvin. I deleted everyone, turned off my phone, and went downstairs. Mom was dressed for work reading the newspaper at the dining room table. It's official, she said, handing me the front page. I skimmed the story just enough to see it wasn't going to tell me anything I didn't already know. The D's... 
DA's office hadn't found sufficient evidence to prosecute Jerry Randall. People were angry. I was still a female teenage driver whose identity is being withheld. Arvin was still dead. How are you feeling about everything? Mom asked. Lousy. I headed to the kitchen for my juice. Mom followed, pressing me to say something more. I liked being around people who knew Arvin yesterday, I said. But in some ways, it made everything harder. His aunt Tilda told me that when he, what he was like when he was a little boy. And there were people who went to high school with him. And his friends from the day center for the homeless. Mom looked out the window, giving me time to finish. When I didn't, she turned back and said, Your father and I have been talking. We're not sure the DA made the right call on this one. I drank some juice to clear the lump out of my throat. Was it self-defense? She asked. No. Do you think he would have done it if Arvin had been white? I don't know. But he definitely would have called him a... Mom put her hand up. Okay. She said, that's all I need to know. Got plans for today? Just laying around following doctor's orders. She gave me a dubious look. Call if you need anything, she said, giving me a quick kiss on the cheek. And no digital screens until Monday. I smiled, poured another glass of juice while she gathered up her stuff, waited until her Mercedes backed out and got my computer. I had work to do. Thanks to Geneva, I knew Raymond Fisher was from Decatur, Georgia, and that he and his gun, Mabel, had gone AWOL from the Army while he was on leave for his mother's funeral. So I started my digging with the 1910 census, which was the last one taken before 1919. Sure enough, Raymond Fisher was there, in the same household as his mother, Ava. Both of them were listed as being Negro, but other than that, the census didn't have a lot to say. There was a link to Ava's death certificate, though, which told me she had been a seamstress who died of pneumonia in January of 1919. There was also a little window on that page with the names of her children. Raymond was there, born 1902, and so was Virgil, born 1900. There wasn't anything more about Virgil, who I assume must have died young. Raymond's 1917 World War I draft card was even more helpful. According to that, he'd been single, childless, had dislocated his shoulder when he was 16, was tall, stout, and had blue eyes. The top right corner of the page was torn off, and even though there was no specific line for it, the person filling in the card had written light-skinned and marked it with a star. There was no death certificate for Raymond, but that wasn't a big surprise. He probably changed his name after he went AWOL trying to stay out of the Army's way. From 1919 on, Raymond Fisher was literally a dead end. After that, I searched Arvin's name and got sucked into reading the online craziness that followed. There was good stuff, yes, but it didn't take long to wander into comment threads on forums full of crap so hopelessly messed up that I couldn't stop reading it. Neo-Nazis, white nationalists, racist skinheads, neo-Confederates, the KKK. Up until that morning, I had no idea those were all different things or that there were so many different ways to hate black people. Racists, it turned out, were into diversity after all. Fortunately, the doorbell rang just before 10. Otherwise, I might have spent all day getting sucked into the world's most depressing wormhole. It was James, dressed in a pink plaid shirt, Bermuda shorts, and top sliders with no socks. Road trip, he said. I asked if the yacht club knew he'd escaped. He ignored me and came inside, grabbing my hand on his way past. Come on, I was a busy boy yesterday, and it's my second day in a row calling in sick. We got a lot to talk about on our way to Pahuska. I let him pull me toward the staircase. Other than moving out of Gladys's way when she came to clean that afternoon, I didn't exactly have plans. Why would I want to go to Pahuska? I asked. He started up the stairs, pulling me behind him. Get dressed, I'll tell you in the car. 
At the top, he pushed me into my room, gently, and closed the door. Hurry, Chase. It's a long drive, and he's expecting us. Who is? I hollered, digging through my closet for something clean. William Tillman's son. Sixty seconds later, I was fully clothed, yanking the door open so fast that James stumbled back, stumbled inside. My sandals were in my hand. The Victrola receipt was tucked into an envelope inside my purse. What are we waiting for? I said. Let's go. There's not a lot to look at between Tulsa and Pahuska other than fields, hawks, and sky. We roared up Highway 99 north of Cleveland with the windows down and the wind whipping our hair. 1969 El Caminos didn't come with AC, and even though the backs of my knees were damp and a fine layer of Oklahoma dirt had settled on my skin, I felt free. I kept James's phone in my hand as we crossed into the Osage Reservation. If I turned it on, the screen would have filled with William Tillman's picture, but I didn't need to do that. I had every curve and line of his face memorized already. While I was at Mama Ray's, James had been faking sick so he could talk to a historian at the Osage Tribal Museum and dig through the high school yearbook collection at the main library branch downtown. He'd found William Tillman inside the pages of the 1921 Tulsa Central High School Tom Tom, looking out from underneath black hair that was slicked back and parted down the middle. If Geneva was right about the skeleton belonging to an African-American, it wasn't William's. His features in the picture were round, with broad cheekbones and a softness that somehow came across as strength. He definitely wasn't black, though. Brownish, maybe. With skin that would darken quickly in the sun. But not black, but not black like Mom, or even me. All that aside, his eyes were what held my attention for so many miles. They were deep-set and calm, laughing all on their own as the photographer had just cracked a good joke and told him not to smile. They were kind, too, like Catherine Yellow Horses. James slowed down when we hit the outskirts of Pahuska. We passed through downtown with its low-slung brick buildings set against the sky's wide-open blue. A few storefront windows had displays. Plenty were empty. Others had been boarded over. I pulled up directions to Parkside Manor, and we followed them to a depressing one-story building overlooking City Cemetery. Shouldn't they have built their nursing home somewhere with a nicer view? I said. James jingled the keys in his cupped hands. I bet they put toe tags on people as soon as they check in. Neither one of us unbuckled. We should take them something, I said. What? I don't know, just something. What do you think? James shifted into reverse. I think we should see what we can find. Mr. Tillman? The sign next to the door said Joseph Tillman and Herbert er Ebersole. I knocked quietly in case either one was asleep. Hello? I peeked inside and saw the ends of two beds. The one next to the window had feet underneath its blankets. Mr. Tillman? I bumped to the door with a box of grocery store cookies in my hand. Behind me, James had a potted fern. The feet moved. A soft voice told us to come in. You must be James and Rowan, the man said. Please sit down. His shaky hand pointed to the blue plastic recliner in a folding chair. I went to the recliner, trying to ignore the nursing home smell of the warehouse human beings. James shook the man's hand, saying, Thank you so much for seeing us, Mr. Tillman. I'll take any visitors I can get, Mr. Tillman said, especially ones who bring me presents. He eyed the cookie box and patted the top of the hospital tray table next to him. What have you got there, young lady? Cookies. I opened the lid and held them out. Would you like one? I would indeed, Mr. Tillman said. There are paper towels in the bathroom. Do you mind? 
By the time I got back, James had set the fern on the windowsill and was sitting in the folding chair. Mr. Tillman tilted the top half of his bed to sit upright. I moved the tray across his lap and set a cookie on a paper towel. I can't eat all these myself, he said. Won't you have some, too? I took out one apiece for James and me. That's better, Mr. Tillman said. Then he stopped, drawing a deep breath in through his nose and closing his eyes. As his wrinkled face tightened in pain, I noticed how long his body was underneath the covers and how broad the knot shoulders underneath his hospital gown were. He felt for a cord looped over the bed railing without opening his eyes and pushed the button at the end of it. A few seconds later, his face relaxed and his eyes opened. Sorry about that, he said. I've got a touch of cancer and sometimes the pain gets to be a little much. He pointed at the IV bag hanging from the hook above his bed. Morphine, I figured the heavy-duty stuff. But enough about that, Mr. Tillman said. I believe you mentioned having some questions about my family, James. James came forward over to the edge of his chair. Yes, sir, Mr. Tillman, he said. Rowan and I, the old man interrupted him. Joe, call me Joe. James smiled. You got it, Joe. So Rowan and I are researching the history of our house, and I think your grandparents might have been the ones who built it. Stanley and Catherine, Joe said. The smile on his face was so sad and sweet that I could see a young man underneath the wrinkles. Once upon a time, he must have looked a lot like the picture of his father on James's phone, and even though the morphine glazed, I could still see he had his father's eyes. It's quite a house you live in, young lady, he said. I smiled. It's been in my family a long time. My great-great-grandparents brought it from Stanley and Catherine. Imagine that, Joe said. Granny Catherine wouldn't set foot in that place, you know, though I suspect the two of you might not be surprised to hear that. He looked back and forth between James and me, and I swear he was trying to get information from us as much as we were from him. I asked him what he meant. He closed his eyes again, only that time he didn't jack into the morphine. I got the feeling he was doing some kind of complex mental calculation instead, deciding what to say. And when they opened, his eyes weren't just clear. They were alive. I mean, you found it, haven't you? He said, after all these years, someone's finally found the body.